Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 16 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue to walk through the book of Jeremiah. This morning, however, I'll actually be reading from the New International Version, and I'll explain why later, but this is what it says. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one's like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms there's no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is bought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphaz. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have, have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from under the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders... The waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Even every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. This is the word of God. You can be seated. As you're being seated or making your way to your seats, will you please bow with me? Father, your word is mighty, it's powerful. Jesus said of the word that it is living. And I pray, Father, that you would please speak to us today. Give us grace to have ears to hear, and give us grace to have hearts that are open, ready, and receptive to receive the truth. Lord, of course, I pray that our hearts will be that fertile soil upon when the word lands, it'll produce a crop. That won't happen, however, without us being willing and wanting to walk in the truth. So I pray, Lord, please cause us to be willing and cause us to want to walk in this truth. Give us grace, Lord. Give us an appetite for righteousness, Lord Jesus. You said, blessed all those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Cause that to be us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bible with you and the, the um, slide that we had on the screen to present the text to you didn't convey this, but if you look in your Bible, more than likely, you're going to see that this portion of Jeremiah has the text sort of indented 
It, it looks a bit different from what you might see in other portions of the text. Like if you look over in chapter 11 right now in your Bible, you're probably going to see the text all squared off nicely into nice little paragraphs. Well, in chapter 10, you'll see there's a lot of indents in the lines. Why is this? When the translators of the Bible from the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was originally written in, into English, when those translators want to give us a hint about something being different with this text. When it's poetry, they form it different. For us readers, us English readers, who wouldn't have picked up on this otherwise. So they, the writer rather, Jeremiah, this portion is written in the form of a poem. Now for us, in this culture, we don't usually convey serious messages in the form of a poem. Our poetry might be something like a love letter, right? It conveys love. It conveys these, these feelings of love toward one another. Or it might even convey some sort of fictional narrative that an author just wants to paint with a bit more color. But it's usually fiction. Not so with the Hebrews. The, the Jews, they were literary masters. And they used all types of literature to convey truth. So it was not strange at all for them to have some of the Psalms written in a form of poetry and to have some sections of judgment written in form of poetry. It wouldn't have seemed strange to them at all. And so the New International Version actually picked up, I believe, on a bit of the flow, the fluidity of this section in poetry form a bit better, I believe. So that's why I chose this. You know I'm not normally in the NIV, but... It just flows a bit more smoothly. It's a bit more easy to read this time in this translation, which is why I chose this. And you probably picked up on something. Jeremiah is going back and forth between the idols and the one true God. Did you pick up on that? The idols are like this, but God's like this. The idols come from here. God is eternal, and he keeps going back and forth, comparing and contrasting them on purpose. So I've actually titled the message this morning, My Dad Can Beat Up Your Dad. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. Yes, this is usually childish jargon that's used, right? Most of us, at least boys in here, I don't think the girls have arguments like this on the playground. But us boys do. Because in our eyes, our dad is the strongest man there is. And so we like to compete. Jeremiah's not being so childish, but he is employing similar tactics, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, to show what these idols are really like. And this is good for you and I. This is good for you and I to actually look at things of the world with proper, real perspective. And then to go to the source of all truth and look at God from a proper, real perspective. This is good for us too, because you're constantly being fed falsehoods. The world, the flesh, the devil, these are our three great enemies, and they're all liars. Or they lust after things that are wrong. There's two main areas that Jeremiah touches on, two main categories that he really 
that you can really put everything in in this chapter, in this section rather, because we're not looking at the entire chapter. He focuses on the origin of the idols and the origin of God and the abilities of the idols and the abilities of God. So origin and ability. Origin and ability. Do we have that for them? Maybe we're having technical difficulties. I made this slide. I spent like five minutes on it. I just wanted y'all to see it. Okay, there it is. See how wonderful. You would have missed out on that. Your life's going to be better now. These two categories are really what we can fit a lot of this section into. Because he talks about where the idols come from, where God comes from. He's eternal. The idols abilities and and then God's abilities. So let's just jump right into that. First of all, look at verse 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. First of all, hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. And that word Lord there, though it's not picked up in this text here, but in your Bible, if you look, you'll see that it's all capitals. And so you know that's the word Yahweh. So this is Yahweh himself speaking to these people. And he says, this is what Yahweh says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. Part of our missionary training before we became mission, missionaries and went on the field, went overseas for years, you learn about different world religions. And there's a certain type of religious groups out there that we put in this group called animistic religions or animism What they believe is, like there's spirits in the rocks, and there's spirits in the trees, and there's spirits in the river. That's what we call animistic religions. And almost all of those, almost all of those that we've ever found are all really, truly based on fear. These people fear these gods. That's one of the uh, earmarks of animistic worship is do this or else something bad is going to happen. Do this or something bad is going to happen. Do this or something bad is going to happen. Even when we were missionaries in Belize, you would see the little babies and they'd have a red uh, string on their wrist. You know why this was? To ward off the evil eye is what they believed. They believed people. There's certain witch doctors over there that even, even people that would attend church would sometimes go to these witch doctors which maddened us, of course. Now, we call them witch doctors. I don't think they call themselves witch doctors. I know when we think witch doctors, we think he's got a bone through his nose and a crazy weird hat and things like that. But they really did this. They would put the string on their babies. Why? Because they were afraid. Someone might have the ability to give the evil eye to my baby and, and hurt my baby. And so animistic religions are like this. And so, guess what? Nothing's changed. It was like this long ago as well. They were saying, oh, when you see this sign in the sky... It means this God's angry and X, Y, and Z is going to happen. And God's saying to them, do not learn the ways the nations will be terrified by the signs in the the sky. The nations are terrified by them. But God's saying, let me give you some truth. The customs of the people are worthless. Now, some translations here, even yours might, says vanity. The customs of the peoples are vanity. In Hebrew... This word is often translated as either vapor or breath, meaning it has nothing to it. You can't grasp a vapor, and your breath is here and gone, right? It has no sustenance to it. It's not tangible. You can't grab it. There's nothing there. And he says their customs are breath. 
Their customs are vapor. They have no worth to them, therefore they are worth less. How so? Now he gets into their origin. Let me tell you why they're worthless. Let me tell you why they're nothingness. Let me tell you why they're but breath. They, these people, cut a tree out of the forest. They, a craftsman, shapes it with his own chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nail so it will not totter. It's a tree. Someone has cut down, formed in a certain way, and then man has to adorn it. Not all idols. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't actually the most common idol that has been discovered or, or has been learned about was pure gold or pure silver. Most of them were wood that were then adorned with gold and silver. Some of them, of course, were silver and gold. We know the Israelites made one out of gold. Sometimes they were even made out of clay. But did you hear what I said? They were made. Man made from man's imagination, adorned by man. But we get in verse 10. The Lord's the true God. He's the living God, the eternal king. He has no beginning. You want to talk about his origin? There is no origin. There is no beginning to this God. He has always existed. You say, how can that be, Cohen? I don't understand. To that I say, join the club. I can't understand God fully either. That's why we call him incomprehensible. You can't ever fully understand everything about him. And that's one thing that's going to make heaven so wonderful. You will never, ever be bored in heaven. You always be learning more about God, I believe, and seeing more wonderful things about him. And even if only one attribute of his was visible in heaven, it would never be boring. Not ever. Look at this next verse. He compares their idols to a scarecrow. On purpose, I like that. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols can't speak. They must be cared because they can't walk. Don't fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. We're going to talk, talk about more of that, that more in a second. But let me read this quote by a gentleman named Stephen Charnock. He lived in the 1600s. He was a, um, actually a Presbyterian clergyman. He said this about God's power, God's ability, who God is. And I believe maybe he even had this text in mind because he references the scarecrow here. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. His promises, an empty sound. His threatenings, a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself. Infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, 
nor frustrated by the creature. He's saying nothing in all created order can frustrate, restrain, or check, put in check God's ability. Nothing. Nothing at all. And he picks up on that here too in our text. The scarecrow could do nothing. It's a facade. It is. It's to make the birds think, this is a real person. Stay away from the melons. But it's not real. It's false. That's why it actually can't do anything. You've all seen the pictures of the crow perched on the scarecrow. They eventually learn, and he's wanting them to learn. That's why he says, do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Don't fear these signs in the sky that people are telling you, oh, this is a sign that, oh, our God's mad at us, and oh, so we better worship him. We better make more sacrifices to him. Oh, Baal is going to be angry with us. God's saying, no, he's not. Don't be afraid of him. But also, don't even seek for his blessings. He can't do any good either. He can do absolutely nothing. Idols cannot curse you, nor can they bless you. What about the curses of God, though? Look at the second part of verse 10. First part said, But the Lord's the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. Remember that? He's eternal. What about his curses? When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. He says, these idols, they can't do you any harm. What about the Lord, the true judge? What about the curses from God? His wrath doesn't just affect the individual we see in this text. It can go nationwide It can go worldwide, according to this text. The earth trembles, the nations cannot endure his wrath. So don't be afraid of them. But I'll tell you who you should revere, who you should have a right fear of. Not a fear of, oh my gosh, he's going to strike me dead, let me do X, Y, and Z. A proper respect and fear that you would have for someone this mighty, this awesome, this beautiful, this glorious, this loving, this righteous, this holy, and this pure. This is what it should be like. Look at verse 7. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. This is what he should get. This is what he's supposed to get. We sometimes use the phrase, that's not fair, because we, we think, I'm, I, I'm supposed to be getting this and I'm not getting it. It's not fair that I didn't get it. God, this is his due. This is what he should get. Reverence and worship from all beings, all of his created order. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. He's saying, go search all the kingdoms. Go search out every man interview every man, find all of them. None of them are equal with the Lord. They're all senseless and foolish. They're taught by worthless wooden idols. And again, he goes on to their origin. Hammered silver is is bought from Tarshish. Gold from Euphaz. Craftsmen made it, dressed it, 
Earlier, he says they, they adorn it with gold and silver. Here they said, he says that they adorn it with blue and purple, very expensive colors to make back in that day. And of course, the precious metal is very expensive. They have the image of success. These idols have a picture about them. This is good. Look at the gold and silver. Look at the purple. And look at the blue. Do we have any false teachings out there that say, follow this and look at all these riches. Look at the prosperity this can give you. Anything floating around like that? There's nothing new under the sun. It was floating around in that day as well. And we have one man here standing against the tide. If you guys recall, that's what I named this entire series. It was Jeremiah standing against the tide because there's just this onslaught of false teaching and everyone's following it like the rats following the piper to their doom. And here's Jeremiah speaking the truth. And he's not popular because of it. So if you're looking for popularity, Jesus is not your guy. Was he popular here on planet Earth? When he was feeding them and healing them? Yes. But once he said, you must carry your cross and follow me. Sacrifice. Once he also said, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And, and, and once he said, you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, they said, none of that. We want to follow Jesus, as it says in the Pilgrim's Progress, when he's wearing his silver slippers and walking down the road like a parade. They say, that's when we like him. Not when he's in rags. We don't like to follow him then. And so they wanted a God that looked successful. Nothing new. Man still wants that. Man wants to follow God when they believe, I can get something out of this. Get all that I want. And heaven. Then in verse 11, now we really start to focus on ability a lot more. Tell them this, verse 11, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. This is a play on words, especially in the original Hebrew. You see it really good, but we can even pick up on it here in, in our English. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. God has the ability to cause them to perish. Why are they going to perish? Because God's going to do it. God's going to show who can actually beat up who. See verse 12? But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom, stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters of the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. This should um, remind you of a section of scripture in Job because the Lord visits Job towards the end and starts saying, who's this who darkens counsel? Let me tell you what I'm really like. Job 38 says this, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you shall answer me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who set up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds and its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set doors and bars and plates, when I said, this far you may come, no farther. Here's where your proud waves halt. What have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. It its figures stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of the death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know this. What is the way of the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the path of, the, of their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for, for the days of war and battle? What's the way of the place where the lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? He just keeps on going and going and going and saying, I do all this. This comes from me. No man can do this. I am the Lord. These are my abilities. This is what I can do. The idols can do nothing. I can do anything. My dad can beat up your dad. Verse 14, everyone is senseless without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. Before I go there, we go back to verse 11. I almost forgot this. Let me mention this. Tell them this, these gods who did nothing, who, who did not make the heavens of the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. In Isaiah chapter 2, He's talking about the day of the Lord. And this is what he said is going to be a part of that day. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away. The day of the Lord, when it comes, idols all false gods shall pass away. Just like it says in our verse 11 here. Listen to what Arthur W. Pink said. He was a, a British Bible scholar. He died in uh, the 1950s. He said, We cannot have a right conception of God unless we think of him as all-powerful, as well as all-wise. He cannot, he who cannot do what he will and perform all his pleasure cannot be God. As God hath a will to resolve what he deems good, so he has power to execute his will. This is what makes God, God, I should say, this is one of the things that makes God, God is that he's all powerful. He can do anything that can be done. And this is what Jeremiah is reminding the people of and what we need to be reminded of very often 
because we get too tunnel-focused on things in the world, and we forget this eternal God, and we need to be reminded of his character often. At least I need to be. Everyone is senseless, without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. This is verse 14. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. Remember earlier how I told you that that word worthless, because we started off with that word towards the beginning, that the customs of the people are worthless, and I told you that this word is actually vapor or breath. Jeremiah does a play on words here. Look what he does. Halfway through verse 14, he says, His images are a fraud, they have no breath in them. And then he says, they are worthless, which is the word vapor or breath. So eventually, he, he, he basically is saying this, the images are a fraud, they have no breath in them, they are breath. That's what he's saying. It's really great when you can see it in the original language. Now, don't be impressed. Like, Cohen could read Hebrew, wow. When I was in seminary, for one semester... When I had Hebrew, and I had to have my nose in the books for about three hours a day just to get that language because you have to read it le- left to right. It's backwards. And you've seen it. It's like chicken scratch. There was a time where I could sort of understand it. Now, all I remember is the alphabet. So don't be impressed. You know what this is? This is me using online Hebrew resources and just telling you what I found. Don't be impressed. <laughs> What's great about this is what I found was that same word. They have no breath in them. They are breath. That's what he uses. I love that. I love how he does that. They are nothing. Nothing that can be grasped. Nothing tangible. Empty. They're empty. The objects of mockery, you should point at them. You should laugh at them. Much like Elijah did on Mount Carmel. Cry out louder. Maybe your God, he actually says in the original language, is relieving himself. Maybe he went to the bathroom. Cry a bit louder. He's mocking him on purpose. Why? They're objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. And then here's our last verse. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. What's he like, Jeremiah? He is the maker of all things. Remember, these idols had to be made. God's the maker. He's the creator of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. See, these idols were made by men, but God is the maker of all things. We see here in verse 16, he even creates a people for himself. He's the maker of all things, including Israel. He chose them out of all the nations of the world. He grabbed Abraham on that day and said, you're going to be mine and I'm going to be yours and I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. And who did that happen through? Of course, the Messiah. Daniel 4, verses 30. 
4 and 35 say, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, Why have you done this? This power of God was shown most clearly when God became man. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, could cure the incurable lepers. To the leper who begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I am willing, be clean. And he cleansed the leper. Remember that? A disease that was supposed to make you unclean. If you touched a leper, you were unclean. You could not worship until you went through all these rituals. Well, Jesus reverses the curse. He touches a man who's cursed, and he becomes clean. Jesus Christ can also raise the dead. To the man Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days, Jesus commanded, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man, whose body had already begun to decay, stood up and walked out of the tomb. Jesus Christ can control the storm to the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee that had become so violent that even these seasoned fishermen were saying to Jesus, we're going to perish. Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea and they obey him. The Bible says there was a great calm. Jesus Christ can command the demons to a legion of demons that had possessed a man, a man who lived among the tombs, who shouted at night and cut himself with stones, we find the demons fear Jesus. They beg him, do not send us into the abyss. They must obey Jesus Christ. And he casts them out, and they leave the man, and we hear that the man is then found to be calm and in his right Mind. Idols don't do that. They can't do that. They are worthless. They are vapor. They are but breath. The power of God, we know, is most clearly seen through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's how God's power, his ability, is going to be most clearly seen in you. It's the only way it's going to be seen in you is when you trust in the one true God, through the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, believing that he died to take the punishment that was supposed to be yours. You see, this God who's so great, who's not man-made, who can do anything, we've transgressed his laws. We've separated ourselves from him. He does no wrong. He can do no wrong. He only did good to man by putting them in this beautiful, wonderful garden, giving them everything they needed. And the best thing he gave them was fellowship with himself. He walked among them. He walked among them, and they were deceived, and even in some ways self-deceived, and they took of the fruit. The one law they had, the one law they had, they broke and cast us all into the curse. And so we rightly deserve wrath. We rightly deserve separation from the Father, but not Jesus. He perfectly kept the law, perfectly obeyed 
and did everything according to the Father's will, yet he died in our place as if he was sinful as we are instead of sinless as he is. And he shed his blood. And he died. He gave up his spirit. But you know that's not the end. He conquered death. See, even death can't hold him. Death, our great enemy, not his. He conquered death, rose from the grave, and by faith, if we're trusting in his sacrificial work alone, will also rise again with him by his power. The dead in Christ will rise. Amen? That's our God. So much better than the gods of the nations or any false god you may have created in your mind who doesn't match the God of the scriptures. Trust in that God. And on the day of wrath, he'll fight for you. Father, we're grateful for this word. It is precious. It's life, as Jesus said. And of course, I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to live our lives according to it. Lord, thank you for this fresh look at your ability. The fact that you even have no origin. You are eternal. And Lord, those who are in you will have eternal life. So, Father, I pray, give us grace, Lord, to always be looking upon you, remembering who you are as compared to the things of the world. Give us that eternal perspective that we need, that we get from the Word of God. We pray all this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Let's stand together. I'd like for us to sing at least a